You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Malice, and Three Men and a Mystery. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Predators. Their acts are evil. We call them monsters. We say no human could perpetrate the crimes they have committed. But in truth, only human beings execute these horrific acts. And if you're like me, you want to know why. To find out, join me, Ariel Cooksey, on my podcast, Malice. As a social psychologist, I dig into the psychology, sociology, neurobiology, child development, trauma, and other factors that come together to create malicious offenders. Find Malice wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of The Murder of My Family is brought to you by the true crime podcast, Southern Nightmare, the story of Virginia's Southside Strangler, the first serial killer in U.S. history caught using DNA. You can subscribe to Southern Nightmare on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit southernnightmare.com. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the premiere episode of The Murder in My Family. In episode one, we'll be discussing the 1986 murder of Kathy Thomas along the Colonial Parkway in Virginia, a murder that would be the first in a series of murders dubbed the Colonial Parkway Murders. Murder in My Family, episode one, Kathy Thomas. Colonial Parkway is a 23-mile limited-access roadway that stretches from the York River to the James River in Virginia. It connects the historic towns of Jamestown, Williamsburg, and Yorktown. While millions of travelers use this road each year to take in the beautiful scenery or to travel from one historic location to another, there are stretches of this road that are lonely and secluded. Some of the best words to describe these areas are quiet, peaceful, or out of the way. In October of 1986, a new word started to be used. Deadly. It was Columbus Day weekend when Kathleen Thomas, age 27, better known as Kathy, and Rebecca Andowski, age 21, who went by Becky, decided to take a ride in Kathy's 1980 white Honda Civic. Kathy, a stockbroker and recent graduate of the Naval Academy, and Becky, a senior at the College of William and Mary, were two women with bright futures. But they had a secret. They were more than friends. They were girlfriends. In 1986, before the military's don't ask, don't tell policy, and the emergence of the LGBTQ community, 
Kathy and Becky felt pressured to keep their relationship a secret from most people. That included sneaking away to enjoy each other's company in private, away from prying or judgmental eyes. Kathy drove the pair to a secluded spot along the parkway on the night of October 9th and pulled off the road east of the Cheatham Annex. The pair planned to spend some quiet time together there. They thought they'd be alone. As it turned out, they were wrong. Early on the evening of October 12th, Kathy's white Honda Civic hatchback was discovered by a jogger. It was about 20 feet down an embankment along the river in some brush. Thinking the car had been in an accident, the jogger alerted National Park Rangers to what he had found, and they went to the scene to investigate. At first, the car appeared to be deserted, but upon closer inspection, searchers made the horrible discovery that the two women were inside the car. They were both dead, obviously murdered. Becky was in the back seat, and Kathy was in the very back of the hatchback area. It was later determined that they both had been strangled before their throats were slashed ear to ear. Kathy had suffered the more severe of the injuries. Rope marks were found on their wrist, indicating that they had likely been bound or tied, but the bindings were missing. Further investigation determined that their bodies had been soaked in diesel fuel, and an effort was made to light their bodies on fire without success. Burnt matches were also discovered near their car. After the bodies were identified, FBI and Park Service investigators had the difficult task of contacting Kathy's and Becky's families to break the devastating news to them. Investigators were left to piece the clues together and make sense of what had happened. Were the murders the result of a sexual attack? A robbery gone wrong? A hate crime? There were no obvious answers. It was established that neither woman had been sexually assaulted. Robbery also didn't seem to be a real motive because Kathy's purse was open and her wallet containing cash was also present. A hate crime seemed like a possibility still. But if so, had the pair been followed by somebody who didn't approve of the relationship or had a random stranger happened upon them? Investigators dragged the nearby York River and they then looked for similar cases but nothing came of the FBI's investigation. Almost a year after Kathy and Becky were murdered, and about 30 miles away from where their bodies were discovered, another couple went missing. 20-year-old David Knobling and 14-year-old Robin Edwards disappeared on September 20, 1987. The following day on September 21st, family of the pair reported them missing. David's Black Ford Ranger was located by an Isle of Wright Sheriff's deputy near the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge. The truck was parked in the parking lot there near the four and a half mile long James River Bridge. The keys were in the ignition, the radio was playing, and the wipers were on. David's wallet was on the front seat, but there were no signs of the couple. A search of the area was organized, but searchers didn't find any sign of the couple. Then, three days later on September 23rd, a jogger found what looked like a pile of clothes along the shoreline. It turned out not to be clues. Instead, it was the body of Robin Edwards. She had been shot in the back of the head execution style. Only a short distance away, David Knobling's body was also discovered. He too had been shot, both in the shoulder and in the head. This was the second double murder in the area in less than a year. 
there were similarities, but also differences. The previous murders on the parkway involved strangulation and a knife. This couple was murdered with a gun. Virginia state investigators had doubts whether the two sets of murders were related and investigated the cases independently of each other. On April 10, 1988, two college students on their first date went missing from a Colonial Parkway overlook only three miles from where Kathy Thomas's and Becky Dowski's bodies were found. Richard Keith Call, who went by Keith, age 20, and Cassandra Haley, 18, were both students at Christopher Newport College. The pair had recently come out of relationships with other people, and despite being on a date, most people that knew them felt that they didn't have a real connection between them. The night before they were reported missing on April 9, 1988, the pair had gone to a party together. Witnesses saw the couple leave the party at 1.30 a.m. on the morning of the 9th, in time for Cassandra to make it home for a 2 a.m. curfew. She never made it home. Coincidentally, later on that morning, Keith Call's father was on his way to work when he spotted his son's car parked on the York River Overlook. He pulled over and investigated the red 1982 Toyota Celica, but there was no sign of his son and nothing was out of place with the exception of the car door being ajar. Not knowing Keith was missing at that point, he assumed his son had left the car there and got a ride with friends. Later that morning, a park ranger noticed the car and pulled over to investigate it. He found that one of the doors was open and the key was on the console. There were various pieces of woman's clothing on the floor, including a shoe, which would later be identified as belonging to Cassandra. The ranger also found her purse, along with Keith's watch and wallet, which contained cash. However, there was no sign of the couple. A team was assembled to search the area for the missing couple, which included search dogs, and divers searched along the waterway. The dogs seemed to follow the couple's scent along the shoreline. However, no sign of the couple was ever found, and they remain missing to this day. After this third incident along the parkway, the FBI and the Park Service finally felt that they had a problem on their hands and that the cases of these three couples might be the work of one person, possibly a serial killer. Patrols were stepped up and rangers paid close attention to the secluded areas and overlooks where couples were known to park along the Colonial Parkway. And for over a year, there were no murders or disappearances involving couples. On September 4th, 1989, Anna Maria Phelps, age 18, and her boyfriend Clint Lauer's brother, Daniel Lauer, age 21, were making the almost three-hour drive from Amelia County to Virginia Beach. Anna Maria and Clint lived together in an apartment in Virginia Beach, and Daniel was moving in with them. Anna Maria and Daniel had come back to Amelia County to visit family and grab some stuff to take back to their apartment. And Daniel was supposed to collect money that he was owed for painting work that he had done, about $600 in cash. The pair left Anna Maria's parents at around 11.15 p.m. They should have arrived in Virginia Beach after 2 a.m. The next morning, Clint awoke to find that his girlfriend and his brother had not come home to their apartment. He called his parents to let them know they were missing, and his mother immediately called Virginia State Police. A short time later, Daniel Lauer's 1973 Chevy Nova was located at a rest stop off I-64 in New Kent County. State police noticed that although the couple had been driving east towards Virginia Beach, Daniel's car was found on the westbound side of the highway with the key in the ignition. The car didn't show any signs of mechanical issues and had plenty of gas. 
It's as if the car had been parked and the parrot simply got out of it and walked away. The only thing missing from the car was a blanket. Police dogs were brought in, but they couldn't pick up the couple's scent. Searches of the area turned up nothing. On October 19, 1989, about six weeks after Anna Maria and Daniel vanished, hunters found two sets of skeletal remains about three miles from where Daniel's Nova had been located. The remains were later determined to be those of Daniel Lauer and Anna Maria Phelps. Their bodies were covered in the blanket that was missing from Daniel's car. The cash Daniel had collected for his painting work was never found. Due to the advanced decomposition, cause of death for the pair could not be definitively established, although examination done by the Smithsonian Institute suggests that a knife may have been used. It was after Phelps and Lauer's bodies were found that police officially acknowledged one person may have been responsible for the four cases along the parkway dating back to 1986. After three years and four couples either missing or dead near the Colonial Parkway, the attack stopped. No other crimes were connected to the series dubbed the Colonial Parkway Murders. But the damage was done, and people steered clear of the Colonial Parkway at night. Speculation and theories from both police and area residents made the rounds. Rumors the killer may have been someone involved in law enforcement or impersonating law enforcement circulated. There's some evidence to back this theory up, most noticeably that the killer may have approached the couples presenting himself as a law enforcement figure. Despite the efforts of local and state police in Virginia as well as the FBI, the case remains unsolved. Making matters worse, in 2009 it was reported that crime scene photos of the victims had been leaked out. The last 30 plus years obviously hasn't been easy for any of the families of the Colonial Parkway victims, but one family member in particular has made it his mission for the last three decades to help keep the case in the spotlight, and he's determined to see it solved. Bill Thomas is the brother of Kathy Thomas, and he agreed to talk with me about the murder in his family. Bill, thank you so much for joining us on the premiere episode of The Murder in My Family. I appreciate coming on. Oh, it's, it's great to be here, and I'm excited to be your first. Well, I definitely appreciate you. And one thing I wanted to get across, you know, right in this first episode is how important it is that the victims that I'll be talking about in these cases aren't just statistics. You know, they were real people. They're more than just murder victims. You know, people with lives and dreams and goals, and they're somebody's family members. And in this case, it's your sister. Uh, so if you can, Bill, just tell us a little bit about who Kathy was you know, as a person, what was she like, and, and maybe what her plans were in life so we can get a better idea of who she was. Oh, sure. Well, Mike, at the risk of sounding like every other proud big brother around the world, Kathy was an amazing person. She was 27 years old at the time of her death, and she'd already accomplished a great deal. So if, if you're picturing Kathy in your mind, you have to picture this incredibly vibrant, amazing, funny, brilliant person. Uh, she had bright red hair, big blue eyes. Her friends always said she had a peaches and cream complexion, which would probably make my mom laugh. She was a, a Naval Academy graduate and very much a pioneer. You have to picture yourself now going back 31 years. Kathy was 27 at the time she died. Um, she had in, in the second class with women at the United States Naval Academy at a time when the service academies had just been opened up to women and were incredibly unwelcoming to women. So she was very much a pioneer. She was one of these people that 
whatever she set her mind to, she was going to going to do that. And she's one of those people. And, uh, you know, we we all know them. Whatever they set their mind to, they excel at. And that was Kathy Thomas to a T. So if she decided she was going to do something, which included being a great friend, she threw her heart and soul into it. So no matter what you put in front of her, she was going to do this. The She could. She was um, uh, a, you know, very thoughtful, sweet, kind of sensitive little girl who then grew up to incorporate the, you know, those characteristics, which I still admire and then adding in, you know, toughness and determination and an incredible sense of loyalty. Uh, so it's a real loss, you know, at the time of this conversation, Mike, you and I are talking about Kathy. It's 31 years later. So Kathy died when she was 27. She'd be 58 now. Um, she had, graduated from the Naval Academy, had been in the Navy for five years, and then died a few years after, I'm sorry, a few months after leaving the the Navy, which could be significant, by the way. And it's hard for us as a family to think about the fact that, you know, she's been gone now longer than she'd been alive. And we think about all of the amazing things that Kathy could have accomplished uh, in the 31 years since her passing. And she is one of those people that could have gone on to be, without an ounce of exaggeration, a, a, a senator or a congressperson, an ambassador, the head of a, a company or organization. She could have done amazing things. You know, one of the things that I talk about in this episode is that Kathy and Becky, who was killed with her, were living in a time where, you know, society wasn't as accepting as they are today of uh, you know, gay or lesbian relationships, and they felt they had to seek, you know, keep that a secret from certain people. How well did your family know Becky, you know, and their about their relationship? And you know, I was just curious have has your family kept in touch with Becky's family over the years? Well, the sit the situation's kind of unique, Mike. Uh, sadly, we had not met Becky at the time of Kathy's death, so. We'd heard a lot of wonderful things about this new relationship with Rebe Rebecca Dowski. And Becky was a senior at uh, William & Mary uh, there in Williamsburg. We had heard from Kathy that she had met someone through her first girlfriend. And uh, they'd really clicked. And she was really excited about this new relationship with Rebecca Dowski, um, who went by Becky. But we had not met her Kathy and Becky died in October uh, 1986, and we were planning on meeting Becky at Thanksgiving that year, which would have been, what, you know, six weeks later. And unfortunately, that never happened. So we had seen photographs. We'd heard about her. We'd talked about her on the phone. Kathy had referenced Becky in letters and postcards. But it, it unfortunately was not. Um, a, a situation just due to the way the calendar worked out. We had not yet met Becky. We hear wonderful things. After Kathy and Becky died, my family never had any contact with the Dowski family. 
keeping in mind, we'd never met Becky and we had never met any members of her family. And my parents, quite frankly, didn't know what to say. And so actually there's a 23 year gap between uh, the time that, that Kathy and Becky died in October 86. And I reached out for the first time to the Dowski family in September or October 2009, um, after the FBI lost control of 78 highly graphic crime scene photos, and I stepped into the case, I reached out to Bob Dowski, and I remember talking to Bob Dowski, who is uh, Becky's older brother, similar to me, uh, in the older uh, male sibling role, and one of the first things Bob said to me was, well, I understand, a little hesitantly, I understand that... Um, the two women were in a relationship and, and I said, well, Bob, I'm here to tell you they definitely were, uh, involved in a, in a lesbian relationship or romantic relationship. And so we sort of got past that pretty quickly. Back to your point about, about what it was like. And I speak to college audiences pretty frequently about the Colonial Parkway murders, the all, all eight of the young people that were lost. And when I'm sort of giving them um, a presentation, sometimes the young people will look at me like I have two heads because people have to understand this was the 1980s. Um, it was actually illegal for Kathy to be gay and be serving in the Navy. Um, I, you know, I smile because recently I saw a photograph of two cadets um, at West Point getting married on the steps of the chapel at West Point. And these two men were getting married and they were surrounded by friends and family. That's how far we've come in in 30 plus years. Back then, Kathy actually could have been um, uh, kicked out of the Navy. She could have been uh, sent to prison and people actually were sent to Leavenworth Prison uh, in Kansas for being gay or lesbian in the service. So. Kathy and Becky were of a time and of a place where you kept your relationship on the down low. You, she was out to our family. Kathy was, you know, had let us know. Um, but Becky, for example, was not out to her family. And then within the circle of, of family and friends, only people that were close to Kathy would know, uh, that Kathy was lesbian. Um, it probably wouldn't have been hard to figure out if someone wanted to pay attention, but this was not a time when you could be open about a, a gay relationship. So she's got a lot of stuff going for her at the time. She's got a new relationship. She's got a career. She's fresh out of the Naval Academy. So she's really got a lot of stuff that's going for her. And then out of the blue, she's murdered, you know, her and Becky. Um, if you can, Take us back to when your family first got the news about Kathy's murder. You know, what was it like for your family, and how did you all deal with that kind of news? Right. Well, it's worth noting that Kathy had just left the Navy a few months before. And uh, so some of that pressure that you and I were just talking about, Mike, about the the you know the, this feeling like you've got the uh, – you know, this policy, this is before don't ask, don't tell. Um, this was, if asked, you're going to go to jail. Um, 
in terms of her naval service. So Kathy has this great weight lifted off her shoulders in June 1986 when she makes a decision, which was a hard one, to leave the Navy. And she's working as a stockbroker in Virginia Beach and actually having a lot of success. I'm not sure she would have stayed with it forever, but she was um, certainly at a very happy time. So she's in this really great, upbeat kind of time frame. She's left the Navy. She's in a new relationship with Rebecca Dowski. She's, in, she's been introduced to Becky by um, Jolene Shira, who is her first girlfriend who had been in the Navy with Kathy. Um, and they, you know, they remain good, close friends for, for their entire lives. And so this introduction has taken place. So Kathy's in this kind of joyous uh, place that, that summer. She's spending time with Becky, etc. So flash forward to uh, October 10th, 1986. <clears throat> For me personally, I was at home um, at my apartment in Philadelphia. I was working for RCA Video. Then it was a Sunday. Uh, the phone rang. It was uh, both of my parents on the phone, which was a little unusual, but <clears throat> certainly not unusual for me to hear from my folks on a weekend. Now, I come from four kids, uh, three boys, and then the youngest is Kathy um, and the only girl. Um, but both my parents were on the phone, and I noticed their tone was very serious right from the get-go. And my father did most of the talking, which was not unusual. My mom was quieter and kind of very Irish Catholic, very funny, but you know, you had to listen for it. But I remember my dad's tone was so serious from the word go. And he said, are you sitting down? And I remember thinking, what a weird thing to say. And uh, I said, no, I wasn't sitting down. And then he proceeded to tell me that Kathy had been murdered and that they had received a call from the FBI and that Kathy and Becky apparently had been at this place called the Colonial Parkway, which was near Williamsburg, not far from where Becky went to school, and about 45 minutes away or so from where Kathy was living in Virginia Beach, and that they apparently had uh, gone parking and they had been found murdered that day, that Sunday. Um, and I remember my dad going into a fair amount of detail, and he mentioned that it was an FBI case because the bodies had been found on federal property, that Colonial Parkway is actually a national park that's 23 miles long and quite narrow in spots. And I remember thinking that it was probably a good thing that it was an FBI case. But my dad walked us through, you know, what we knew. And it occurred to me much later when I was much more involved in the case um, over the last eight years, it occurred to me that my parents had to make that same difficult phone call three times in a row. They had to call my older brother, Richard, then me. And I remember they, they told us they connected with both of us on a Sunday. My younger brother, Jack, who was a year and two weeks older than Kathy, um, they often call them Irish twins when they're born within a year of each other. They're barely outside that window. Uh, Jack didn't find out until Monday because uh, my parents didn't catch him on a Sunday. And again, when I'm talking to college age uh, audiences or younger people, this is a pre-internet, pre-cell phone environment. If you wanted to reach somebody back then, 
you either call them at work or at home. And then really, you know, young people and people that were kind of on the cutting edge had an answering machine. Because otherwise, if you wanted to get a hold of somebody, if I wanted to get a hold of you, I would call you at work or at home. And if you had a device, I would leave you a message. Otherwise, I'd just keep calling you off and on until we connected. So in this example, my parents had to have the same very difficult phone conversation three times over two days with each of the brothers asking, you know, all of these terrible questions that, you know, that we all have. Um, it, so it was incredibly, incredibly uh, uh, shocking and kind of, as you said, Mike, out of the blue. And at some point, you go from grieving and you start asking questions and getting involved in learning the details about the case. Tell us a little bit about the whole process of getting to that point and where that road led you. Yeah, well, thanks. That that one's a difficult one. Um, I'm actually working on a um, right now. It's a it's a presentation that I've given a few times, and ultimately it'll transition into a book that I'm going to call Life Lessons from the Colonial Parkway Murders about all of the things that my family's learned over the last 31 years. One of the areas where my family fell short, and I talk about this in, in the book, is that we immediately moved into a circling the wagons mode. Um, you know, my family, Irish Catholic, Kennedy Democrats from 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 the Boston area. I think you get the you get the idea. Um, I could feel the wagons being circled and us shutting out the outside world almost from the get go. And so I remember, you know, I, I drove up to New York from Philadelphia the next day, uh, picked up my brother, spent the night at his apartment, and then we drove up to Massachusetts where my parents lived uh, the following morning. And as soon as we arrived at the house, I could just sense this circling of the wagons. The phone was ringing off the hook. My parents were uh, n refusing to do any media interviews or interact with any outsiders except for the FBI. And in retrospect, I think that was a mistake because as you're transitioning into into grieving, it is absolutely critical. And of course, we discovered this the hard way. It is absolutely critical that the families who have lost loved ones, whether it's a missing persons case uh, or, or a, a serious sexual assault or or a um, heaven forbid, a murder like ours, you while you're grieving, which is a is a process and it's going to take time, you also have to transition, at least some of you have to transition into organizing and getting your approach to law enforcement, the media, the public in general um, together and quickly because time is, is ticking. Uh, and this is an area where I think my family made a massive mistake. We, we kind of closed ranks refused to cooperate with the media, which was a big mistake, um, only dealt with the FBI and, quite frankly, put too much faith in law enforcement that they were going to solve my sister's murder case. Um, and here it is 31 years later, and we're still working on it. So, you know, getting to your point, what's the difference between the same thing happening in 
2018 versus 1986. What, if you were recommending somebody out there that needed advice, what would you tell them to do if they found themselves in the same situation? Well, at the risk of sounding like I'm slapping someone else in the face who's going through a similar experience uh, than we did um, and saying kind of snap out of it, which is far from what I'm trying to say, I think we all have to realize that we as a country have a problem. There are 200,000 cold case murders in the United States. That's unsolved murders. Terrible things happen every single day, and certainly even in a smaller uh, area of jurisdiction, a smaller town, smaller city, terrible things happen every week or every month. What families have to realize is they're actually going to have to advocate, and I underline that, advocate for their loved one in terms of pushing law enforcement, working with law enforcement, keep keeping the case alive because this idea of a cold case, um, it, it with all these terrible things that happen every, every single week, month, what have you, the resources for law enforcement, uh, which are far too small, far too limited, the caseloads are unbelievably heavy, families have to realize that they're going to have to get in there and they're actually going to have to fight, and I use that word, they're going to have to fight for resources to make certain that their case gets the attention that it deserves. Because remember, those 200,000 cold cases are still sitting there and then new things are happening every single week. And we, I think we all have to be more grown up about this. Law enforcement in the United States is way too small, doesn't have enough resources. The FBI is way too small and doesn't have enough resources. And we have to recognize that uh, law enforcement is going to respond to the most egregious cases on their case board and the highest profile ones. And so one of the things I advise families to do is to make certain that their case is a high profile case. And how does it become a high profile case? With with public attention. And so they need to begin getting out as difficult as that may be, at least, you know, a member of the family. And it could be somebody just outside the immediate core nuclear family. It could be an aunt or an uncle or a, a well-spoken cousin or someone like that. But someone needs to begin providing a public face of that case to the public using the media and interacting with law enforcement. And I mean immediately because they used to say that within if your case wasn't solved within 48 hours, um, that the chances of it being solved drove off a cliff. Um, I, I think you could maybe modify that uh, that commonly used phrase and stretch the time period out. But the truth is, if, if a case drags on for weeks, um, that's not a good sign. And it is really important that um, interaction with, with uh, the media, with law enforcement, with the public, start almost from the get-go, as difficult as that might be. And you mentioned, you know, 31 years. That's how long it's been, you know, since Kathy's murder. Where does her case in particular and the Colonial Parkway murders overall, 
Where does that stand right now in 2018? Well, uh, we find ourselves at a difficult, in another difficult spot. Uh, First, very briefly, the Colonial Parkway murders are four double homicides of, of young people in and around Williamsburg, Virginia, from 1986 to 1989. So you have eight young people killed over a three-year period um, in in couples uh, situations. Uh, two of the cases are FBI cases because they happened on the Colonial Parkway near Williamsburg. And then two of the cases are Virginia State Police cases because they happened about a half an hour in either direction off the Colonial Parkway. So they're not on federal property. And they're handled by two separate Virginia State Police agencies. So when we talk about the Colonial Parkway murders, we're actually talking about four separate cases. According to the FBI in 2010, they said to us when they flew, took the highly unusual step of flying us in to Virginia to brief us on the status of the case after they lost control of these crime scene photos and the we kicked up a significant amount of attention in Virginia media. They said to us at that time, nothing in the forensics actually links any of the four crime scenes. So with the Colonial Parkway murders, we could be dealing with a single killer or killers, or we could be looking at four separate killers or some combination. You know, there could be a stop somewhere in between those two extremes. So we find ourselves dealing with the FBI on two of the cases, the Call Haley disappearance, which is now 30 years old, and is the call Keith Call and Cassandra Haley are considered to have been murdered. It's been 30 years, and they've never shown up. And then uh, Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski, those are the two cases that happen on the Colonial Parkway. And then the second case, that of Robin Edwards and David Nobling, is handled by the um, Virginia State Police, and that happened at the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge, which is, as I said, about a half an hour away over near Newport News in a place called Isle of Wight County. And and then the, the fourth case is uh, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer, who were found uh, murdered off I-64 in a place called New Kent County, Virginia. And so we, you know, it, it, there's no... St- there's no single place to go for information. The two of the families deal with the FBI. Two of the families deal with separate Virginia State Police offices. We've been pushing the FBI and the Virginia State Police hard in the last two years to move forward our cases using advanced forensics, um, specifically, for example, MVAC technology which stands for microbial vacuum. And we're, we're asking that they go back in and use this uh, relatively new high-tech device to uh, cover every square inch of all of the evidence um, in the Colonial Parkway murders using this MVAC. And then, then it, it goes in for conventional DNA testing. But the communication from law enforcement to the families, quite frankly, is terrible. Um, it has been six months and two weeks since the FBI has last spoken to me and, um, they actually do not take my calls. In, in other words, if I call, they will refuse to speak to me. Um, it, it, 
it has been a very, very long and frustrating process. So requests that we've made regarding advanced forensics, I've specifically asked for certain that certain tests be conducted, and I have a very difficult time, as do the other families, in getting a straight answer as to whether these tests have been conducted. And uh, it, it, we find ourselves in, in a really difficult spot. Um, we have pushed both the FBI and the Virginia State Police. We have, we've offered to pay for testing ourselves, that is to raise money. We're not made of money. But the families have offered to pay for testing ourselves and been rebuffed uh, with concerns about chain of custody and so on. And we've said, wait a minute, you know, we'll use approved labs that are, are that work closely with Virginia State Police and FBI. And, uh, w- you know, the families will will pay for the testing, but we want to move the process along and. And all we get is institutional resistance. So we find ourselves at a very, very frustrating place. That's certainly not something that a family that's looking for answers 30 years later wants to hear, I can imagine. No, and and the thing is, Mike, it it really, after a while, it begins to to push past uh, uh, into something I I would call just flat-out disrespect, disrespect for the families. Um, I have been told so many times by the FBI, keeping in mind Kathy and Becky's case is an FBI case, so I deal with them most often. I have been told literally dozens of times that the that cold cases are the lowest possible priority at the FBI. And so, you know, I think people have to understand that the FBI has been largely redeployed as an anti-terrorism agency since 9-11. So the FBI doesn't do a lot of murders. And then uh, violent crime, which is the section that handle uh, murder uh, at the FBI, um, has been given a lower priority than anti-terrorism, which I understand. I mean, we I lived in New York on 9-11. I lost friends on 9-11. I haven't lost sight of uh, the importance of anti-terrorism and keeping people safe. But to be reminded over and over again that violent crime is a low priority at the FBI and that within violent crime, and I'm quoting them directly, cold cases are the lowest priority of all within the violent crime section. To be told that over and over again feels like the Colonial Parkway murders families are being told to get into the back of the bus and, to, and quite frankly, to shut up. And we're not going to do that. And I've said on conference calls, which have sometimes grown heated, I've said – You know, ladies and gentlemen, I hope it's clear by this point, we're not going away. And we want this case to be given resources and hopefully solved. And people tell me that the Colonial Parkway murders might not have been a solvable case in 1986. But experts tell me that by 2018 standards, this is a solvable case. So if we haven't thrown away all of the uh, evidence, which is a is an experience we've already been through. Uh, this case can be solved, but the Colonial Parkway murders, just like any other case, need time, attention, and resources. Well, we definitely know that it can be solved because we've seen cases recently that have been solved, decades-old cases. So let's hope that's yes. what happens here. And 
they say the squeaky wheel gets the grease, so I hope you keep on being the squeaky wheel so you can keep the <laughs> keep the focus on on the Colonial Parkway murders in particular and you know Kathy's case as well. Well, the other Colonial Parkway murders families do tease me sometimes because as you can probably tell and your listeners can of this podcast, I feel very passionately about this. Now, I I have ended up, I'm rolling my eyes here, which they'll have to visualize. Um, I didn't ask for this role of, of kind of becoming the de facto, they use the word leader. I'm not terribly comfortable with that, but uh, somebody has to do it. And, you know, my partner Pamela said, well, maybe this all happened, you know, eight going on nine years ago now for a reason. And it kind of happened on your watch, Bill, and you are now, you know, spearheading this this effort. The other families do tease me sometimes. They're like, oh, sure, Bill, just stay in there. Keep fighting the good fight. And I'm willing to do it. But the truth is, it's really a group effort. I'm just the one with the biggest voice. And I just want to say, too, it's very admirable that you're not only an advocate for this series of murders, but you're very supportive of other victims and other crimes. You know, I know you've been passionate about projects like End the Backlog, the uh, insane amount of untested rape kits. Uh, I see you in every crime-related Facebook group, and I I often joke with you that (laughs) you know everybody because you are all over the place supporting other people's causes. Uh, So I I think that's very admirable, Uh, and I'm I'm glad to see you out there doing doing what you do. Well, thank Uh, you. It's funny. One thing I'll mention real quickly, Mike, is when we solve the Colonial Parkway murders, note the optimism, um, I actually intend to pivot to this larger conversation that I kind of touched upon a minute ago, which is, uh, I, you know, we as a country need to face up to the fact that we are not putting enough resources into law enforcement, the FBI, advanced forensics, et cetera. These 200,000 cold case murders, many of them are solvable cases just like ours. And at the same time, I'm glad you mentioned end the backlog. Uh, Mariska Hargitay, the the actress and her team have devoted years now to building up an organization um, uh, called End the Backlog uh, through their Joyful Heart Foundation. And they're working on a, something that's very much related, which is that there are at least 200, some people say as high as 400,000 untested rape kits sitting on law enforcement shelves across the country. So this means that a, 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 a woman, it can be a man, but typically it's a woman, has gone through the worst experience of her life um, and has been sexually assaulted and then goes through what many people describe to me as the second worst experience of their life, which is the physically uncomfortable, even painful process of having a, a rape kit taken, which involves basically you know, a gynecological uh, level invasion of your body right after you've been raped when what from what people have been through the experience tell me what you really want to do is go home take a shower and curl up in a ball and try to you know cry yourself to sleep um, to then have that rape kit sit on law enforcement shelves in some cases for decades with no testing no DNA analysis and in some cases rapists just continuing to uh, move from one sexual assault to another, and I am aware of cases where this has happened. And 
as rape kits sit untested and rapists go unidentified, there's a whole nother part of the discussion that I'd like to participate in on a going forward basis, which is in the richest country in the world, we can't solve 200,000 cold case murders and, and several hundred thousand rape kits. Uh, and the, uh, this isn't a political issue. This is a matter of, of having the will and the resources. And just like I said before, you can solve any case with time, attention, and resources. And I feel strongly, based on all the things I've learned over the last 31 years, that we as a country can do a better job. Absolutely. And those numbers are staggering, mind-boggling. The rapes combined with all those murders are just you can almost do another podcast on all of that that's out there that's uh, not being discussed or, or covered. Uh, and one thing I'd like to do, and you mentioned when the Colonial Parkways, you know, murders are solved, is I'd like to do a follow-up with you uh, because I'm holding out hope, as you are, that the case will be solved. So I'd like to do a follow-up interview with you down the road and do an episode uh, when we find out what the truth is in the case. Well, thanks. And I appreciate the shared optimism. We'll, we'll, we'll stay with it. I have a great deal of faith. The, the developments in the Golden State Killer case and the use of gene, genealogy um, in terms of moving their case forward has been extremely exciting for those of us that are waiting for similar cases to be solved. Absolutely. And in the meantime, if somebody wants to reach out to you or find you uh, or learn more about the case, where should they go? Well, I think the best place to go is if they want to reach out to us, uh, if they go to the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page, which is Colonial Parkway Murders, um, they, they can reach out to us there. If someone wants to learn more about the case, um, certainly you know any kind of Internet search, Google search, or what – what have you will bring you to these places. But for example, our Wikipedia page uh, is one that we maintain and try to keep up to date. And if you go to, if you look up Colonial Parkway murders on Wikipedia and scroll down to the bottom of the page after having read it with great interest, I'm sure uh, there are dozens and dozens of links that we maintain um, at the bottom of the page, which can take you to Newspaper stories, um, and thank God we still have newspapers, um, uh, television, radio, uh, previous podcasts. We've done a lot as a, as a group of, of family members to keep this case alive um, and to keep it uh, in the public. Um, there's also a, uh, a very good book um, by Blaine Pardo and, and Victoria Hester um, on the Colonial Parkway murders. Um, called A Special Kind of Evil, which came out last year, um, which is, is quite good and gives you a good overview of the case. Um, and uh, Blaine and Victoria talk about uh, all four of the double homicides and some you know, personal history of the, of the eight victims and kind of uh, what the law enforcement experts call victimology, but it, it's sort of where that individual, where those individuals were at the time of their deaths in terms of what was going on in their lives. And so there's a lot of great information there. Um, it, uh, they can come in and hear me speak. At some point I will finish the 
first book I'm working on, uh, on the Colonial Parkway murders, I was kind of hoping to have a happy ending uh, in, in, in that book. So we'll see how the next uh, six months or, or a year uh, pan out. Um, but it's we've tried to increase the visibility of the case by doing podcasts like this and by um, kind of putting ourselves out there. And so I, I think we should be fairly easy to find. Certainly start with the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page. And last but definitely not least, um, this is very important. If somebody out there thinks they know who might be responsible for some of these killings or has a tip that they want to provide, who do they reach out to? Who do they contact to do that? Oh, they reach out to the FBI Newport News, Virginia resident field agency. It's kind of a mouthful. The the uh, the two FBI offices that are responsible for uh, the case are the Norfolk uh, FBI office um, and the and then the Newport News uh, field office, which is still a very large operation, which is in Newport News, Virginia. Um, they would they would contact them uh, and ask for the case agent responsible for the Colonial Parkway murders. I just want to thank you once again for joining us for the premiere episode of The Murder in My Family. If you enjoy this podcast, Please take a moment to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast so the show can continue to grow. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderinmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter or on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon, it's always appreciated. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash themurderinmyfamily. Starting in episode two, at the end of each show, I'll be sure to give shout-outs to each new supporter. As we wrap up this episode, be sure to check out previews of two true crime podcasts I think you'll really enjoy, from two of my good podcast friends, Jamie and Laney, hosts of Murderish and True Crime Fan Club. Until next time, remember, every murder victim means something to somebody. everyone, I'm Jamie, and I host a podcast called Murderish, which takes you inside stories of murder and other creepy events. The first episode of Murderish lets listeners be a fly on the wall for a first-degree murder trial. The story is told from a juror's perspective as I was that juror. If you are a true crime junkie and need to know every detail, you'll feel right at home with this podcast. Follow Murderish on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Facebook at Murderish Podcast. And don't worry, this doesn't mean you're a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime addict like I am, then my show is for you. I'll peel back the curtain and give you a glimpse into the life and crimes of some of the most demented minds. Check out the episode Broken Bonds and listen to a brother reveal a deeply held secret. Or hear about the day that the heavy metal community will never forget in the episode Dimebag. These episodes are just a sample of our catalog, so you have plenty to binge. 
Just search for True Crime Fan Club Podcast in any podcatcher. You won't want to miss an episode. 